Good morning. Um, as previously mentioned, um, sleep is not a gift I'm enjoying right now. So if today makes no sense whatsoever, poke Hemi with a stick when you see him next. Uh, we've been talking about um, this little prayer here. You may have heard of it. Um, it's called the Lord's Prayer or the Abba Prayer or Jesus Teach Us How to Pray Prayer or something like that. Um, and we've been talking about this line that's in italics. Uh, italics has been added. Jesus didn't say it in italics, just so you know. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, we've been talking about the idea of asking God for bread as a group of people uh, who live in a country where there's quite a lot of bread, um, who live in a neighborhood where most of us can get our own bread, um, and where we live in a world where we see bread as something that you buy um, with the money that you've earned, and uh, that's how bread works. We've been looking at the strange idea that Jesus seemed to think that bread came from God. Um, not from the strength of our own arms, which, of course, is extremely naive and very silly. Um, Jesus is good like that. And we look back at the story behind this phrase. Hello. Um, See, disciples. Come, little children. Um, (laughs) And wave. Hello. You've got a straw. You've got lots of straws. Lucky. Axel's winning. Um, We looked at at the story behind this phrase um, of Israel being enslaved in Egypt. Brutal, endless work making bricks to expand an empire. Um, Egypt, or Mitzrayim, as it was, uh, as I've butchered the Hebrew pronouncement of, um, became symbolic to the people people of Israel as um, symbolizing not just a place, but a way of life and a particular way of living. Egypt was an empire that was constantly expanding and, like all good empires, trying to take over the world. For Egypt, safety came from strength. Strength came from growth. Growth came from working to capture all of the resources. And Israel found themselves at the bottom of this pyramid, making bricks ironically, to build pyramids and to build grain warehouses to store grain. Um, the key to, hello again, the key to surviving, to surviving drought um, is to have all of the stuff. And the Bible presents this like interesting view of drought um, that when a drought happens, it's not so much that there's no food at all, it's usually that someone else has the food and that you don't have the food, and that you can't afford to get the food. And so the way you secure your nation is to make sure that you get all the food so that you can sell it to somebody else. This is the ethos of Mitzrayim, or Egypt. And so I've made this like handy synopsis chart with bricks in the middle, and picked two kind of clashing colors, um, just to annoy all of the graphic designers, and used the brand new word feature um, that um, my new version of PowerPoint gets me. So, 
Look, it's like orange around the outside and black in the middle. So that's good. And I've kind of like spread the, the words around in a kind of rustic, um, scattered fashion to show you that I care, but not that much. Um, so Egypt symbolizes these things here. Um, achievement becomes master. Dependence is weakness. Work is endless. Endless. There's a stance of restless discontent. There's never enough. What we produce defines who we are. The system that makes all this work is difficult to resist. Rest, us, anxiety, it's supposed to be is, guys. Um, Rest is anxiety-inducing. To pause means you're missing out on accumulating more, which means you're losing power, which means that you might be threatened by your neighbor. Expansion at all costs. Israel knew what expansion at all costs looked like because they were slaves at the bottom of this grain storage facility-making empire. Israel, through a series of extremely bizarre miracles, was set free and promised a land but they find themselves in the desert, having to depend on all things of bread dropping from the sky. They were prohibited to collect more than a day's bread, other than the day before the Sabbath, the day of rest. So we discussed last week this idea of the desert as detox from Egypt. A cold turkey break with the idea of work as endless, as bread and bread as purely a product of labor. It was a throwback to the garden where God was a source of life. This is so central to Israel's understanding of God is that God is the creator and the sustainer. He's the source of life that provides all good things. And the desert was this kind of like concentrated experience of taking all of the um, power of Israel's efforts away from them to symbolize the space of depending heavily on provision of God, sort of tearing away the illusion and, and, and acknowledging that God provides all things in the first place. A detox from tyrannical certainty, from trust in their own ability, from ceaseless production. They were banned from hoarding. They were banned from accumulating more bread than they needed for the next day, which must have been totally frightening. And that was in order to break the narrative of accumulation that, is, that Egypt had instilled in them. The desert was a detox because it was an immunization against fear, the fear that without endless work, we are doomed. It's important to note here that work in this view is not bad. Production is not bad. But when it becomes a master, when it becomes a way of exerting power over others, when it becomes a product of fear, when it is ceaseless accumulation, it's no longer work, but it's toil and idolatry. Why the drama? Why would God make them go cold turkey? To prepare them for the land. So they were about to be brought into a land where they could produce for themselves again. But the catch, as always, is how would they work? Would they work built with a rhythm of rest? Would they work in a way that they'd still acknowledge God as the source of all life? Or would they work like Egypt worked, to accumulate power, to make themselves safe with their own strength, 
to see, the na- to see every neighbor as a threat to their security, to forget God as gift giver and source of life, essentially to enslave themselves to the gods of more and lose trust in the God of enough. So what God's trying to do here is invite them into this idea of manuha or rest. On the seventh day, God rested. So if the gods of Egypt were the gods of never enough, the gods of more, the God of Israel, El Shaddai, the many-breasted one, the one whose milk does not run out. It's one of the female names for God. Um, God is, the, is essentially the source of life and the provider, and he invites them to rest. Manuha, rest is life-giving. God is the source of life. Dependence is a gift. Rest, uh, restless discontent is not supposed to be on that one. See, this is what happens when you make never drive PowerPoint when you're tired or drunk or have a balloon in your mouth. A stance of gratitude instead of restless discontent. We can say, I have enough. I've done enough. I have enough. I've done enough. The goal rather than accumulation is to be deeply human. And there are practices and rhythms that resist the system of accumulation. We talked last week about the role of intimacy in this. To live life in this place requires a relationship of trust. Rest requires trust. Trust that we are the beloved. Trust that God is the source of life. Trust that the narrative of the universe is gift-giving love, not kill-or-be-killed competition. To rest requires trusting that the narrative of the universe is gift-giving love, not kill-or-be-killed competition. This kind of trust goes hand-in-hand with intimacy. So today I want to talk briefly about the kind of trust I'm talking about, and we're going to call it today, in very small font, embodied, (laughs) embodied trust, living as if God was the source of life, living practices that reflect this. Embodied trust has an opposite, which is theoretical trust. Theoretical trust is saying that you believe God is the source of life, but living like he's not. And I think how that's manifested in my life and perhaps in this neighborhood is that we primarily trust free market capitalism, our own privilege, and our capacity to produce goods and services, and then bring God in as a pinch hitter when we get into a scrape. So I think the way we shape our lives is as if we are the source of all of our life, as if independence is the ultimate goal, as if we can provide for ourselves. And then when that all falls flat, say, help, help, do a miracle one, one of them things. It's a little bit like a swim coach versus a lifeguard. A swim coach, if you do like surf training school when you're like a kid, in New Zealand, like most of your education is about earthquakes and rips. And so you learn. (laughs) I remember like hiding under my table, practicing one balloon. 
Good trick. Um, I'll give it a three. Um, oh, rips and earthquakes. Sorry, thank you. Not balloons. I'm not talking about balloons this morning. I told you this. Um, I remember hiding under my table in primary school, um, getting taught. You guys didn't get this because probably because you don't get that many earthquakes. Categories did. Um, hiding under my table, getting taught about earthquakes, about like hiding under table so that things don't fall on you. And of course, as a kid. The main thing you can think about is what if the earth splits open under the table? Then surely I'm safer on top of the table. And so it's a big conundrum. And, and rips. Rips is the other thing you learn to spot from a really young age. I grew up in, um, in Tauranga, which has got this amazing surf beach. It's not very very good surf beach, but it's really blue water and nice sands. Um, but there are rips everywhere. And rips essentially are the bits where the water goes back out to sea. And um, surfers use them. Just jump in a rip and it'll take you out. To the very back, but if you're a uh, small child, rips are not preferable. And so you're taught from a really young age by your swim coach to learn how to spot where the waves aren't breaking so you don't get caught in a rip and get dragged out to um, Antarctica or wherever they go. Um, it's not a very pleasant experience. And so your swim coach teaches you how um, the rhythms of the water and how it all works. A lifeguard. Um, is a person who, if you ignore all of that advice, um, is the person who hopefully gets to you when you flap your arms about enough um, and rescues you um, from the rip that you found yourself in. And I think the danger for us as people who grow up in the kind of uh, Western culture that we grow up in, where essentially our view is that life is a meritocracy, um, that what we have is what we have because we're great and we've produced it, is that we use God like a lifeguard. We um, live according to a life of accumulation, and then one day, if our ability to produce ever falters, then we cry out to God for help, Um, which is a very different kind of trust than what the narrative of Israel is trying to embed in us, which is this trust that before you ever need a lifeguard, you are already dependent because God is the source of life. The only thing that can break this narrative of fear of unless I keep working, unless I have enough, I'm not safe, is a sense of intimacy and embodied trust and practice with the giver of life in the first place. If God is the source of life, then I shape my practice around that from day dot. This kind of trust can only be developed when we genuinely need God or acknowledge our need for God. It can't be understood from a position of self-sufficiency. So this morning, I'm going to propose that to follow Christ, we must foster dependence. To follow Christ, we must foster dependence. To break the narrative of of I am safe because I produce we need to build practices of our, in our lives which make gaps. Jesus seems to have a lot to say about those who want for nothing. He indicates there's a high chance that they'll never understand the kingdom. There's this little story here. Um, and I'm wondering, as your last act, Harriet, of um, an unmarried woman, <laughs> um, before we have to ask Henry's permission, whether you can read this or not, um, I was wondering if you could read this for us. Okay, Henry. <laughs> As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed him. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Thank you. This is a disturbing story. The idea of going and selling everything you have and giving it to the poor, it's a pretty dramatic point. What do you need to please God? Love God, love your neighbor. Yeah, I've done that. Great. Now just go and sell all you have, and you'll find the kingdom. I think what Jesus is saying here, this is just a proposal, is there's something about being self-sufficient that makes the kingdom of upside-downness impossible to understand. It's like having obscured vision. Embodied trust is a way of life, a dependence that sits below the surface of everything we do, allowing us to live open-handed and release the terrified grip on what we possess. For most, it takes a serious life crisis to bring us into this kind of relationship with God, where we have no other option and are forced to acknowledge our limitation. This is why I think Jesus says, blessed are the poor. This is why I think Jesus said, I came, a doctor comes for those who know they're sick rather than people who already think they are well. Independence threatens to bind us from how connected we all are. It's going to look at one more story this morning that I um, posted on Facebook for those of you who are around to have a think about. Um, this is a trimmed down version because I wanted us to focus on the relationship between the two men here. And um, I'm going to need another reader. Do we have another reader? Someone who can read this bit? Yeah, thanks. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one could cross over to you from here, and no one could cross over to us from there. Thank you. So let's not get too caught up on um, what vision of eternity this gives us. Um, can talk about that another another time. I personally don't actually think that's directly the point of the story. But I want us to think a little bit for a second about the dynamics between Lazarus and the rich man. Particularly the rich man's view of Lazarus in the story. So if one of the factors of the story is that the rich man ends up in a place of anguish because of his disdain for Lazarus, I want us to think about whether anything changes for this man. So how would you describe his relationship with Lazarus before the judgment. Does anyone want to add some words to this? Um, does the rich man have a name? Or is he just called the rich man? Um, <laughs> Trevor. Yeah, I think Lazarus just was invisible. He was completely dehumanised. I don't think the rich man couldn't sort of bear to look at him or actually humanise him. Um, yeah, I think he was just completely invisible. Anyone else want to add anything to that? The rich man knew Lazarus's name. And he was aware of I think that there's a term in law that's something like constructed malice. Like you're not malice. I could be wrong, but you're not intentionally being cruel, but you're so negligent that you are basically intentionally being cruel, and that's what this represents. But the interesting thing is that you're not told anything about Lazarus other than that he suffered. You're not told that he did good works. You're not told that he was kind or generous. It's kind of assumed that he wasn't able to be, but he still makes it into heaven. How about the power dynamics? If you classify who holds power, it's pretty evident 
that the rich man does. Then there's this judgment where because of his actions, he finds himself in a place of anguish. What's the rich man's attitude to Lazarus in the second half of the story? He doesn't talk directly to Lazarus. So in a way, I guess, he's still objectifying Lazarus. He's a method of getting water. Yeah. Anyone else want to add to that? So, so my two cents, exactly, is that what's Lazarus's role to the rich man here He's still a, he's a servant. Quick, bring me some water. I'm I'm thirsty. I'm I'm in anguish. Send send. He's got nothing better to do. Send him. Cat. Also, like he's he presumes that. Abraham would treat Lazarus like a servant as well by bailing it. Hey, send your guy over here. Like, that's the way everybody would think. And in some ways, I go, not everybody thinks like that. And then I look at myself and I'm like, well, yeah, I probably think like that too. Abraham, send your boy. Sorry, Harriet. I don't, the British have had a hard enough time already this week. So this is one of the things I think the story is trying to point out is the rich man's blind. Like surely the rational response of going, because of your treatment of this man, this is where you find yourself. Surely the rational response is to go, oh my God, I'm a terrible person. Now that all of my wealth has been stripped away, I can see that you're a human and you're loved by God. Look at you sitting at the banquet table. How could I not see that before? Woe is me, <laughs> tearing my hair out. What can I do to make it, up for you, make it up to you? But this independence and superiority is so entrenched in this man that even like an apocalyptic scene like this can't penetrate the view that I'm the rich man. I deserve everything I have. And if I don't, then I'm going to get the boy to come and bring it to me. And this, I think, is the danger of independence. This is what I think drives us to fear. This idea that everything we have comes because of our ability, of our work, that everybody else is 
a resource to be used or leveraged for our own gain. That if we foster independence as a central narrative of our life, we'll miss the kingdom. Wealth, ability, power, obscures our vision. Something about them makes the kingdom hard to see. A lack of dependence means we don't need God, and when we don't need God, we slowly become disconnected from the way that God is connected to the world. It's easier to make decisions that enslave others when we no longer remember what it was like to be enslaved. Paradoxically, sometimes it's also easier to do the same when we remember the terror of slavery all too well and live in fear of it happening again. The feeling of dependence is one that connects us with the reality of the world, that we are all dependent. We are all gracious recipients of the Creator's good gifts. So in this series, we're going to look at a bunch of practices that help us embody trust and foster dependence in our lives. Sabbath, a day where we hand over our power to produce, to buy and sell. Acts that help us pretend that what we have comes from us. Gratitude, a practice that acknowledges the source and brings us in line with the heart of the Creator. Generosity, practices dependence, mimics the gift-giving God, reminds our lizard brain that kill or be killed is not what it is to be human. Communal worship reminds us of our identity beyond ourselves. Jubilee, or wealth limitation, acknowledges the sacredness of parts of life, such as the home. Connection with the land is connection with how God provides, reminding us that there is enough, but that there are not limitless resources. Feasting reminds us what it is to embed ourselves deeply in joy, and fasting reminds us of what it's like to be without and that that's okay. All of these practices, these embodied ways of being are connections and synapses that remind us how God's provision works, how the kingdom plays out, and what it is to live in the reign of God. Lose the practices, and as Israel will tell you, pretty soon you start building pyramids and empires and chariots. This morning, our practice will be communion. Communion is a practice that gives us connection with dependence, with the one who did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. It gives us connection with the body, that ultimately we are not alone, nor are we only responsible for ourselves. So I'd like to invite you into this little embodied practice, a free gift of life, an act of dependence of something beyond ourselves, an act of a community of love and equality, an act that acknowledges God is the giver of good gifts and the source of life. So in the center of the table, um, you're more than welcome not to partake in communion this morning, but if you'd like to, um, we can all gather around. Um, there is juice and crackers, and uh, if you can take a little juice and a piece of cracker, and then we'll eat and drink together. Let's pray. 
Jesus, you told us not to fear. You told us not to rely on our own strength. You told us that we are good, that we are deeply loved, but that we're finite and that that's okay. You taught us the blessing of being in need and for people who have so much. Sometimes we need reminding of this. We thank you for this good gift that you have done for us, what we could not do for ourselves, that again you have provided. We acknowledge that this gift and that the air that we breathe, the land that we stand on, the bread that we eat, the blood in our veins, the love that binds us together, all echoes of your good, generous gifts. We love you and we look to you this morning. Let's eat and drink together.